Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with some of the most interesting and inspiring people around the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. Today, I'm joined by an amazing photographer, an equally amazing person, Camille Seaman. Camille is a TED Senior Fellow and a contributor to National Geographic Magazine. Her images of ice and the Earth's polar regions have been published worldwide in numerous magazines and publications, far too many to mention, in fact. She has two beautiful books to her name, Melting Away, A 10-Year Journey Through Our Endangered Polar Regions, and The Big Cloud, Spectacular Photographs of Storm Clouds. She joins us to talk about her life's journey and what led her to photography, some of her transformational experiences around the world that led her to this place, her fascination with ice, the polar regions, storm chasing, and a lot more. And we'll get to that conversation with Camille Seaman right after this short message from one of our sponsors. This episode was brought to you by Luminar Neo. Luminar Neo helps photographers with everything they need, edit and process photos, that look amazing on the screen and in print. Luminar Neo is designed for hobbyists and pros alike and includes the most effective AI-powered editing tools and extensions all in one intuitive and easy-to-use app. Whether you're showing off the finest detail in the fur of your wildlife photo, adding a glamorous glow to your portrait shoot, or enhancing that golden hour light in your landscapes, Luminar Neo has everything you need to improve your images naturally. You can use Luminar Neo as a standalone app on a Windows or Mac computer, or if you're like me, as a plugin for Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop. So you can keep your existing workflow while having access to powerful editing tools you just can't find anywhere else. I especially love the AI enhancement features, plus the use of layers and masking for localized editing as well. Learn more about Luminar Neo and how it can help you improve your creativity and photo editing by visiting skylum.com. That's S-K-Y-L-U-M.com. Neil, welcome to the Beyond the Lens podcast. Good to have you. Thank you. I uh, have to say, as we were speaking before the recording started, that you were highly requested, recommended, to appear here on the podcast. Um, several people contacted me on Twitter, said I needed to have Camille on the show. <laughs> so you are one popular lady. I wonder why. <laughs> well, I mean, all, all the people who requested were female. So I think you are quite an inspiration with everything you've accomplished in your career. Mm. Is it true that you were named after one of the most notorious hurricanes of the 20th century? It's true. <laughs> I was named after Hurricane Camille, which was uh, hit landfall in uh, 1969. Well, that also tells you my age. <laughs> <laughs> Did your parents have a particularly acute appreciation for irony or just a good sense of humor? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because... Um, I think I was going to be named after my father. I was the firstborn. 
And that would have made my name Leslie. And Mm -hmm. I don't think my mom was happy about that. And then when, um, you know, how the hurricanes get their names, you sort of have a list of what's going to be the hurricane name. So Mm -hmm. as it was approaching, I think partly because I was, they, they tell me I was three weeks overdue in New York in August. So she was probably like really ready to have me out. And uh, I think it was partly, I don't know. I don't know why they named me Camille exactly, but um, I think that the the reference to the hurricane is really interesting. And uh, I have since looked up its more ancient meaning. It comes from the Roman Camillus, which means uh, attendant at a sacrifice. Okay. I like the fact that you're a category five. You know that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that better than the attendant at a sacrifice. Yeah. It's pretty wild. So maybe they just like the name. So speaking of your parents, um, can we talk a little about your childhood, where you grew up, your environment, influences? Sure. So um, I grew up, I was born in Huntington, Long Island, which is in Suffolk County, Long Island, New York. Um, My mother had grown up in East Hampton and Harlem. Her dad was uh, an Italian immigrant who came as a young boy. I think he arrived in 1903 at the age of 13. And her mother, my mom's mother, was um, descendant from an enslaved person uh, from the Carolinas. And my father, uh, also Afro-Indigenous, though, uh, we have Shinnecock and Montaukett uh, ancestry. Mm. So growing up on Long Island, I didn't really have the influence of my African or Italian um, heritage, partly because my mother's father died when she was 10, so I never met him. And... um, Growing up on Long Island, I was sort of removed from my my mother's family. I saw them on holidays and things like that. But my father's family was dominant in my upbringing, my experience in the woods, fishing, uh, on the, on the water, you know, crabbing and clamming, and all all the things that we did, uh, we had a huge number of cousins always hanging out on this geographical hill that we called the hill. Mm -hmm. There were always a lot of us up there playing. And it was during that period where it was, you know, we just had to be in before it was dark. Your grandfather on your father's side had a, a big influence on you as a child, particularly with regard to the natural world. Can you talk about how he did that? Yeah. So my grandfather, his name was Lester Redfield Seaman Sr. And um, he he thought it was really important that we, as his grandchildren, knew what it meant to be good human beings and that that meant understanding that we were interconnected and interrelated to everyone and everything, that there was no such thing as separate uh, from nature that humans were, we are part of everything. We are re- interrelated like a big web. And so um, he, 
he he wasn't a big talker, but he was an amazing teacher. It was all about experience and showing. And so, you know, one of my favorite things that um, he would do is from a very young age is take me by myself into the woods and introduce me to each tree. And he would, you know, he'd have me put my hands on and say, this is your relative in the same way that I am your relative and you must respect it. And so I, in that experience, learned to see the face of each individual tree. So the side effect of that is just like you uh, have a unique face from the next person, I, I recognize you. So I recognize the trees in the same way so that they I don't get lost. Uh, it's very easy to see their uniqueness. Um, and this is not anthropomorphizing them. I'm not trying to make them human. It's just acknowledging that they are alive. They have a wisdom. They have a knowing. Um, and they have a connection to us that we cannot exist without them. And they uh, have an interrelatedness with us. And so that goes across the board for everything. Um, another thing he would do, we we were very, uh, by all standards, quite poor. And yet we were not, we didn't have a lot of money, but we, we were, we were never poor in our, in our experiences. Uh, we had chickens, we had ducks, uh, we had rabbits. And and even still, my grandfather would come home with a raccoon or a possum. Sometimes that was dinner. Um, we'd go fishing if we wanted to eat. We'd go crabbing or clamming. And we had a huge garden. And in that garden, it was more my nana's, my my grandmother's uh, area. The garden was hers. But grandpa would, again, take me into the garden with the fish heads and we'd bury those fish heads into the soil. And again, you would say, this fish feeds the soil that feeds the plant that feeds us. So it was always this showing that interconnectedness that, yeah. It's, yeah, we're all, we're, we're not separate from nature. We're part of nature and we're all connected. He would um, have you go outside and find a place out in the woods and just sit for an hour. What, oh, that one. <laughs> what was that like? And and what kind of effect did that have on your your uh your your just appreciation for nature? Well, I mean, even even beyond my appreciation for nature, this again, this teaching he would do uh every day uh from about the time I think I was probably five, every day, whether it was raining, snowing, hot or cold, I was made to sit outside for one hour. And it wasn't so far away from the house. Like I could, I could see the house behind me. Uh, one of my favorite places was this uh, uh, big stone, um, and another place was this picnic table. I would sit on top of the picnic table, and I was not allowed to move from that for an hour. And and did you like it at the time? Did you say, "Oh, I got to do that. I got to do this again," or is it something that you appreciated later in life? You look back on it. Yeah, that was great. But how did you feel about it at the time? I think in the beginning I was really belligerent and stubborn and I would I would push back and I you know I'd be like or if I just didn't want to do it it's too hot or it was snowing or it was pouring rain 
um, I would come in and say, I didn't see anything, Grandpa. And he'd say, well, go back outside. So so you just you just <laughs> learn to <laughs> embrace it. And and I think definitely now looking back, I understand that he gave me the most incredible gift. He gave me two gifts in that exercise. One was the gift of being still and observing my world. And as a photographer, that is essential uh, to be able to be present and observe, to see things. Great preparation to be a nature photographer. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I think that, you know, there was no way that that was known at the time. It was just a way of, of being aware. And the, the second gift he gave me was in that awareness, knowing and feeling that that veil of, of separateness just dissolve and, and realizing that when, when we acknowledge that we are interconnected, that beautiful things happen. You know, you end up with a butterfly landing on you or a bird coming right up to you or a squirrel eating from your hand or, or whatever it is. You you end up with these, you know, crazy experiences that people say, wow, how did that happen? And it well, it happened because I acknowledge that I am part of this. And because I'm part of this, I have that respect and awareness. And so then amazing things start to happen. I know you started photography relatively late in life, but is there a specific formative experience? As a ch- as a child or teenager, that led you down the path to photography. Well, I think I always enjoyed being the one with the camera. Um, I remember even when it was this will really date me. Um, those Kodak Instamatic, those rectangle cartridge things. It mm-hmm. was a really crappy image, really grainy. Um, but I loved being the one that could press the button. And and my family would say, give the camera to Camille because she doesn't cut her heads off. Um, and I remember when the pictures came back being really disappointed that they weren't sharper. Um, so I think there was, there was part of me that even as a child acknowledged that, you know, uh, there, there was this, this visual quality to a photograph that was appealing in high school, it was it became something that probably I think saved my life. You know, playing with a camera. How did it almost save your life? Uh, well, if we jump forward, you know, to my teenage years, um, my grandfather died when I was thirteen, and and I have to say, it, it was like um, a vacuum in our family. It just created chaos, and and so. Um, the one thing that I had developed through my childhood was my ability to draw. It was drawing was my superpower. And uh, that got me into the fame high school of music and the arts uh, in New York city. Hmm. And so I auditioned and got into that school. Um, But the, the flip, the razor's edge of that was I was pulling my mother back into the city that she had escaped. You know, and she she really resented me for that. And I also 
as as I embraced my teenageness um, was was really becoming very creative in my self-expression and the music I listened to was like punk rock music and and she just didn't understand it so going to that school was a blessing in that it gave me exposure to New York City museums it gave me exposure to uh incredible other artists you know in my age at school we were all creative and excellent at what we did uh it gave me discipline from the teachers there but on the on the home side of things things were horrible my mom was very um emotionally abusive sometimes physically uh just because she didn't understand what i what i was or who i was and and she was raised devout roman catholic so i was like you know everything i did i was going to hell um and it got right. so bad that at the age of 15 i just i just one day said i i can't do this anymore and i left and i remember being really angry and confused at why I was in such a situation where I was sleeping on friends' couches in order to stay in school. And um, I had um, lied about my age to get a job in Woolworths to have some money to support myself. And the school recognized that I was at risk. And they put me in an after-school program where they gave me a Nichromat film camera but they took away the manual and they said, you have to figure out how to use it. But they did teach me how to bulk load black and white film and mm -hmm. use a wet darkroom. And they said, go out and photograph your experience. And I have to say that that was the most incredible lifeline that anyone could have thrown me because it gave me something positive and creative to do in, a, in that very dark time. And wow. it gave me an excuse in the middle of, you know, 1980s, New York to be places I had no business being photographing my friends and their bands and the whole punk scene. And, and so that camera really, it did, it, it kept me from going into the, the abyss. Wow. That's a great story. Tell us about your the early trip you made to Alaska, which I'm, I'm sure is many years after that, or maybe it's, maybe it's not as many as I think. And how that may have helped spark your photography career? Yeah. So, um, you know, even though I had that amazing experience with the camera as a 15 year old, I, I still, I think partly because I was in survival mode, didn't ever see myself as being a photographer or, or thinking that, you know, one day I could be, you know, having my images on the cover of a magazine or something like that. And and so life went on. I, I was lucky enough to go to university. And after university, I moved to California. And while I was in California, I discovered surfing. Uh, I became a total surf crazed woman. I was surfing every day. And to support my surfing, I was doing my beadwork, uh, my traditional beadwork. Um, one of the other gifts of my family was I was taught uh, how to do uh, make moccasins and all sorts of things. So uh, I was doing this and I loved doing it. And I thought this was my purpose. This is why I existed. I was doing it. You were selling these, these moccasins and other things you were making. 
Yeah, I, uh, they were. I couldn't make them fast enough. I was selling them to galleries across the country and also at powwows and things like that. And uh, I was working six days a week, um, 10 hours a day sometimes just to fulfill the orders. And one day I woke up and my hand was like on fire. And I went to the doctor and they said, you have decrovanes tendonitis and you have three options. You can rest it, you can do surgery or uh, cortisone shots. And I was like, well, let's try rest. So while I was resting it, my boyfriend at the time, he had to go to LA from Oakland, which is only a one hour flight for business. And he said, why don't you come? And we're sitting in Oakland airport waiting for this flight when the airline announces that they've oversold their flight and they'll give a free round trip ticket to anyone who gives up their seat and waits just one hour for the next flight. And I was like, I, I don't need to go to LA that bad. Mm -hmm. Here's a free ticket. And so I, I, I did, I gave up my seat and it turned out it was Alaska Airlines. And before that moment, I had had no curiosity or ambition, desire to go to Alaska, let alone any place cold. But here was this free ticket. And so I decided to use it to go to a place called Kotzebue which is situated on the supposed Bering Land Bridge. And because my tribal affiliation, you know, uh, is at the very eastern tip of Long Island, like the next, if if you're any further, you're in the ocean. You can't and so go was, further than, you can't go much further west than that. Right? Exactly. So I was curious, you know, the, the theory at the time was that we had migrated across the Bering Land Bridge. And, and so I was curious about, well, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And still, I was not a photographer, even though I had a camera with me on that journey. So I arrive in Alaska in, it was 1999, early March, and uh, they lost my luggage. And the local Inupiat people outfit me in sealskin parka, hat gloves, everything I need. And they say, don't worry, when your stuff comes, we'll get it to you. And dressed like this, one day I just set out on the ice and that experience of walking out on the ice. I have to say I had a film camera. Uh, this was before digital. And I, I was, I was aware that film will crack and freeze at below minus 35. And it was just around that temperature. Um, so I had it tucked in my parka and only took it out a few times. And because I had these big heavy gloves on, like the images from that are are probably the worst images <laughs> possible. Not important, not important as what the experience is, where it's taking you, right? Exactly. So, so as I was walking along the ice, um, two people pulled up each on a snowmobile, a Russian woman and a native man. And they said, where are you going? And I said, I'm trying to get to where the ice ends and the sea begins. And I was so naive. I really thought it was like smooth white ice and then blue water. And they said, well, that's 22 miles away. And, and I said, oh, I can't walk. I had nothing. I had no supplies, no water, no food, no shelter, nothing. And, and they said, well, we're going that way, but we're not coming back. We could give you a ride. And so I got on the back with the man. With no ride back. With no ride back, because I'd never been on a snowmobile before. I had no idea <laughs> that they go fast. 
And and in my head, my grandfather's words are, you know, if a door opens, even if it's not one that you've planned, walk through it because it will have a great teaching and it might just lead you to something that is more in alignment with what your heart deeply desires. So I get on the back, off we go. And pretty quick, we're doing like 60 miles an hour across the ice. And and after I was at first, I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's so really cool. And then I started to do the math and I realized, whoa, whoa, I have to walk this back. Stop. <laughs> so so they pulled over and they let me off. And I watched as they they disappeared into the whiteness in front of me. And then they turned around to look for the town and it was gone. Like all around me in 360 degrees was just whiteness. And I realized that that was a really bad situation to be in, that there were polar bears out there, that I was literally on the frozen sea ice and it could open up and swallow me. Nobody would know where I was, uh, that I had no food, no shelter, nothing. Neil, I had no idea the story was going in this direction. That's incredible. It it was um, a real, <laughs> oh, oh, expletive moment and so i decided to turn around and follow the snowmobile tracks back before the wind blew them away and i walked for five hours before i saw the town again and as i walked back all of my grandfather's teachings were like flooding through my brain and i understood for the first time in a really visceral way that i was standing on my rock in space that i was on my planet that i am of this earth. I am an earthling. I'm made of the material of this planet, and I will return to the material of this planet. I also realized at that same moment that I meant nothing in the scale of time and space, that really the snow would blow over my cold, dead body. I meant nothing. And yet the fact that I could have these thoughts and this experience was in its own way, a sort of miracle. And so I made it back And I discovered (laughs) that as I did this walk, I was also three weeks pregnant with my daughter. Um, So my awakening as an earthling was in tandem with my awakening as a mother. Hmm. Wow. So you made it back safely, obviously. And (laughs) I guess, I guess, how long did you stick around or before you headed back down south? So I was out there for probably 10 days. Um, I, I met some of the locals. It was really uh, culturally very interesting. But when I went back down and I told my mother-in-law this story, uh, she was really intrigued by this idea that I had met my planet. And so um, as a almost 70-year-old at the time, she signed on to a Russian nuclear-powered ship and went to the actual <laughs> geographic North Pole because she said she had to see it for herself. And she came back, and in between the period of her going and coming back, of course, I had my daughter. And she said, you know, she had the same experience that she understood she was standing on her rock in space, and she wanted to write a book about it. By this time, uh, 9-11 had happened. And when 9-11 happened, I remember holding my daughter as the second plane hit. And we're... (laughs) I remember thinking that my daughter would never know these buildings in the way that I had, except for in a photograph or film. 
And it was that like was a spark. A, yeah, a light switch came on. Like I just as we was we were bombing Afghanistan, I remember again sitting on my couch and thinking, what can I do to counter this darkness and this cynicism? And I realized the only skill that I had was I knew how to make pretty pictures. And in that moment, I suddenly knew that I wanted to use my camera to document my life and my experiences. I want to I want to be really keep it real clear. It wasn't like I was like, I'm going to become a professional photographer and I'm going to spend the next 20 years documenting climate or chasing tornadoes. I, I just knew that I wanted to document what was beautiful about my life. And I think that the moment that I had that intention, the universe was like, well, I've got a place for you to go. Hmm. So this is about the time that you reached out to Steve McCurry. Yes. And he invited you to Tibet. Yes, because I was 32 years old when this switch came on. And there was no way I was going back to school to learn what I needed to learn. And so I I think also because I had had lots of other different kinds of life experience and wisdom, I knew how I best learned. And so I decided to call up every photographer whose work. I was like, how did they do that? And I did. I, I, I called him up and, and I said, I'm really curious about how you use natural available light to make such soulful portraits. And he said, well, if you want to learn that you have to come with me to Tibet. So we went to Tibet and he kicked my ass. <laughs> Wait, how did he kick your ass? So when I, because the switch had come on, I was like, you know, I had every format of camera. I think I had five different formats of camera with me. I had my Rolleiflex TLR. I had my 35 millimeter SL, uh, SLR. I had, um, a six by seven medium format. I had a four by five. <laughs> I had all these different cameras with me and all the film and everything to go with it. And and he was like, first of all, why are you dragging all this stuff around? And then second, uh, he would catch me out in the in the bright blue sky day uh, photographing. He'd be like, what are you doing in this horrible light? And he, he would physically grab me and pull me into one of these alleys where he would say, do you see here how there is no harsh shadows and it's diffused? And and I have to say, Steve reminded me about the importance of being sensitive to what good quality of light is. He said, and I agree with him, he said, it doesn't matter how good your subject matter is, your composition if you do not understand what good quality of light is, your images will not withstand the test of time. And he and I both, I think, want our images to have meaning and interest, not just like a Instagram, you know, scroll by, but for hundreds of years. So, so, I'm I'm really thankful that he so early in my you know uh, road to becoming a professional photographer really did take the interest uh, <laughs> to to give me that lesson to remind me that 
you know, it's about light, not any kind of light, but a, a very special kinds of light. Was that the biggest lesson you learned from working with him? Was there something else? I learned a lot from him. Um, I, I learned some things that I pushed against. Like, for example, he he was very quick to move through, for example, a village and make an image here, go there, photograph this person. Whereas I, I realized pretty quickly that I like to spend more time with the people before I photograph them. Um, so that was a good thing to recognize about myself. Um, another thing that he gave me was he said, he said, you cannot fake time. And what he meant by that was when you look at someone's in quotes body of work uh, about their, let's just say trip to Tibet, you can tell if they've only been there a week or two weeks. Whereas for example, with his work, when you see that somebody has been there for decades going back, you cannot fake that. And, and, and that becomes a much more thorough, detailed, and I think personally rich um, documentation. And so I knew just from being around him that those long projects were what I wanted to do. That was going, I was not going to be a sort of hit and run or parachute in. And I also, it made it very obvious that I was not going to be a sort of spot news, you know, one event today, next event tomorrow type person. So you wanted to find, you know, where your passion was and fully invest in those things and not spread yourself around too thin. So it's more like going deeper and not wider. Deep and and really, um, it meant that you had to, I had to uh, be very passionate about it, very curious about it deeply because you know. So and and sometimes it doesn't work. I'll go out and I went to Siberia for example, and Siberia was amazing, but it just there just wasn't enough there for me. It didn't feed me. Uh, enough to want to go back uh, or or to push deeper into what that was. For somebody else, Siberia might be a lifelong project. Right. And so yours, the theme of your work has been primarily big ice, big clouds, which are references to the Earth's polar regions and then in its ice and then the storm and extreme weather photography. Would that be uh, fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have, um, I have some singles, you know, like if, if we're talking about my albums that are mostly polar, uh, or storm related, then I also have things like I do, I do get really into doing portraits of people and, uh, occasionally things that have to do with my indigenity. Uh, but absolutely I, I am elemental with, uh, ice and the clouds we'll be right back to the show after a quick word from one of our sponsors this episode is also brought to you by case filters that's case with a k k a s e i travel the world with my camera and i can use any photography filter i like 
And trust me, I tried them all. But over the past few years or so, I've used case filters exclusively. Why? Case filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, which means no blues or magentas during your long exposures, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems, filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code BURNABY10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use coupon code BURNABY10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case filters capture with confidence. So it only seems appropriate that someone named after a storm <laughs> would become a storm chasing photographer, right? But where did the love and fascination for ice come from? My last name is Seaman. Oh, <laughs> of course. It's all in my name. I, I, I think um, all the clues are there. I just, all the clues are there. So, so, you know, back to my tribal um, heritage. Um, we were traditionally a whaling sea people uh, living on the shores of, of Long Island. And uh, I think that's in my DNA that I have to say when I'm out on ship and we are out of sight of land, like deep water, that's when my whole body really relaxes. And I know that for other people, it's not the same. Um, so I I do think that there there is part of me that feels really at home on the sea and I I cannot I mean even beyond the ice the experiences that I am so fortunate to have with whale encounters and it's just incredible the things that I get to witness Can you describe the emotion that you felt the first time you laid your eyes on an iceberg Okay, so my my first trip where I saw a massive iceberg was to Antarctica, and and we that was that was in two thousand and four. So I was almost coming up on twenty years. My first time to Antarctica, and we had decided to go to Antarctica as a thank you to my mother in law who took us to Svalbard up in the Arctic, uh, so that she could write her book and include me in her book. And Svalbard was so mind-blowing with its sea ice. And we were on a small Norwegian icebreaker that we were, we were like, well, if this is the Arctic, what's the Antarctic? And so as a family, we went down there. My daughter turned five in Antarctica. And uh, I just remember the first massive tabular iceberg I saw. I just, I, I think my brain short-circuited because I do. I remember standing at the bow, sort of shaking, trying trying to comprehend what this was, like how much time this was, how many, no, knowing that it starts as a snowflake, one snowflake on top of another snowflake, falling on the polar ice cap, and then moving over thousands of years, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years as a glacier, very slow till it gets to the sea and breaks off and becomes an iceberg. 
So it had this in, entire existence. And I was thinking, you know, in terms of how my grandfather raised me, whose water is this? How many ancestors' water is this? Uh, because everything is interconnected. Uh, I was really blown away by the awesome scale of of this thing that existed here on our planet. This was not some faraway science fiction. It was right here on our planet. And how amazing and beautiful. Is that what you mean by photographing icebergs is like taking portraits of your ancestors? Absolutely. Hmm. Each one, you know, (laughs) occasionally people will try to use my images as their own. And it's a really weird thing, but I recognize each one of my, if you showed me a a thousand icebergs, I could point out which ones I had photographed and which ones were not mine. It's almost the same thing with the trees where I, I recognize their faces. And so these icebergs, I know that I'm photographing them in this moment, in that light, in this time. And if I came back the next day, they could be gone. If I came back uh, um, a year, it'd be very different. These, And it's very similar to making a portrait of a person in that way, that it is, it is this moment, this brief moment that you want to try and record piece of their their identity a piece of their character a piece of what their life and their existence is and i you know it took years no that that makes perfect sense to me it took years before i started to realize that you know i had been going down and up to photograph these things that no longer existed. Now they exist only as these photographs. Um, and I think I think that's part of me also maturing, like recognizing that our life is a one-way ticket. Uh, you know, it's it, we are all moving towards our end. And to to I think part of the calling of being a photographer is is being the witness, being the documenter, being the one who says this is worth future generations knowing about or seeing. And preserving it. Yeah, and having access to it. So photography is about emotion. You as an artist, you want, or photographer, you want your audience to feel something when they look at your photos. What do you want your audience to feel when viewing your ice images? That's a great question, because I I often say that if you look at my images and you feel nothing, then I have failed. Um, I I try to avoid being missionary in my desire to tell people what they should feel or think. Um, But my hope is that when someone is looking at my images and they, they spend time with them, that it it opens a way for the viewer to start their own dialogue and have their own feelings about. I don't want to tell them what to feel because, for example, with my 
storm chasing images or even some of my icebergs. I have had people say, oh, that looks so scary. Um, I could never do that. I could never go there. And and it's funny because I'm not make I'm not trying to make scary images. I think I think the viewer brings themselves to the to, to the image, no matter what it is. And so, you know, I I could make something that's really sweet and happy, um, but if the viewers mind and beliefs are are not feeling that then then it's part of what they're bringing to it right Um, different people different people can can see and feel different things from the same image absolutely based on their experiences and their background and the life experiences and they could feel something completely different than another person that yeah that's exactly what i'm trying to say thank you (laughs) so is there a connection between uh the ice photography and glaciers and the storm chasing aspect of your photography, which is another big part of what you do. Well, any connection? Yes, there is because I had spent a good long while photographing in the polar regions before I started storm chasing. And part of my, what I was learning when I was in the polar regions alongside these scientists, um, I was learning about climate change and they were basically saying that, you know, if we lose stability at the poles with the melting and the warming, that it will affect our temperate zones. It will affect our global stability. And so I was curious about, well, what does that look like? And one, just uh, one day, my, my, daughter was watching she was eight years old at the time was watching storm chasers on the net geo channel and uh i was vacuuming and i just saw this color and the the light and i i was so frustrated because they they weren't filming it wide enough like i i wanted them to turn the camera and it was sort of my daughter caught me trying to like look sideways into the tv and she said mom you should do that and so, um, so you did. So I did. Yeah. So during a commercial, I went in and Googled storm chasing and it turned out it's this whole world where you can pay people to drive you very fast in bad weather. And, um, one website really stood out. It was super uber nerdy and had like lightning flashes across the screen and thunder sounds. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I recognize passion when I see it. I want this guy. And so all of his trips, this was 2008, were completely booked. So I sent him an email and said, I see you're fully booked, but if anyone cancels, let me know. I'm interested in doing this. And less than an hour later, he emailed back and said, can you be here in three days? I just had a spot come open. And so I, three days after my daughter said, mom, you should do this. I was doing it. You're a doer, Camille. You're a doer. Well, I think um, it's too easy in life to come up with excuses. Oh, I, I could, but I should wait. Or maybe next year. Or and and. My grandfather's words have not let me down when he said, you know, walk through that door, even if it's not one that you planned. I I could never have dreamed the life I have, the richness of the things I've been able to witness and record. 
all because I gave up my seat on an oversold flight because I said, okay, I'll go through that door. And I got on the back of the thing with those snowmobilers. And, you know, I said yes to this guy who said, you know, can you be here in three days? I think I have a trust um, in, in this knowing that, yes, the universe does want to give you exactly what you asked for, even if you don't know quite how to ask for it. You just have to have the courage to say yes when the door opens. And so many people I find they don't, they don't have that courage. So how did that trip go when you went out there? It was amazing. It was epic. Um, I had no, it was like, whew, it was so visceral, the smells and the sounds. So you're talking, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but we're talking about the, um, yeah. The Great Plains of the US. Yeah. I'm assuming with Tornado exactly. Alley and the colors. Yeah. The the structure of the clouds. It was it was so extra sense. It was all your senses. And 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 I remember <laughs> I only had a 24 millimeter. That was the widest I had. And I was it was sort of like that th- scene from Jaws when like we're gonna need a bigger boat. I just knew I'm going to need a wider lens, <laughs> but I didn't want it to be like stupid wide. I wanted it to be just wide enough to get more of the structure. I think the widest I've ever used is probably a 21 millimeter. So you're you're chasing these supercells and they're tremendous they once they're, you know, they, right well, the you. thing is, I don't know if people understand this. They can be up to 50 miles wide. Try and fit that in your viewfinder. <laughs> And they right. can reach up to 70 miles into the atmosphere. So, like, you're talking edge of space. It These things are massive towers. And not to mention the light of what happens when the hail starts to form. You get these turquoises and these greens. And then... Of course, because it's a supercell, that means it's it's not part of a front. It's it's just literally a cotton ball. It's just gone up by itself in the middle of nowhere. So you have sunlight still shining from the western edge. So it can be just amazing. It's not just about the tornadoes. It's it's the, the clouds themselves. I mean that that create the tornadoes that are beautiful. Yeah, definitely. For me, I mean, I've only seen a few tornadoes in all my years of chasing, and that was fine by me because, you know, tornadoes, there can be some beautiful tornadoes, but I never wanted to be a a disaster tourist. And we, we have, we have seen some really incredible devastation and we just put the cameras down and we try and help when we can. So I was going to ask because I've actually always wanted to ask this of of storm chasing photographers, and you happen to be here, so you're convenient. So I'm going to ask you, um, and this may not apply directly to you, but other storm chasing photographers that you know. Um, but you go, let's just say you go out for a sunrise, as an example, and you go out early and you find your composition and you got the right lens and settings, and you wait for the light and the sun, the clouds, and you hope and hope and hope, waiting and hoping for. A convergence of the elements that come together to produce a beautiful sunrise photo. Now with tornado, well, I think you see where I'm going with this. I, I see things as a photographer. The conditions are right. You're in the right place. You have the right gear. Uh, 
and it looks like something might happen. And I don't want to say it looks promising or it looks good because you're kind of hoping for something very mm-hmm. tragic to happen. At least it has the potential to be tragic. Property and homes will be damaged, mm-hmm. lives lost. So again, this may not apply to you, but maybe others who do this. What is the mindset of a photographer in that situation? You've done a lot of planning. You've stayed in bad motels, um, driving, eating crappy food, just to have this opportunity, maybe your only opportunity. As a photographer, you're you're hoping for success, but as a human being, there must be some conflicting emotions. I mean, are you rooting for tor- the tornado to happen? I mean, you kind of have to be. How do you reconcile those two emotions at the same time? Yeah, it's. I think that's part of why I don't chase anymore. Um, I chased for eight years until 2014 and, um, or sorry, six years, so six years. And, um, you know, I remember there was this one massive tornado in a place called Bennington, Kansas. And we, we watched it. We watched it just sort of lower from the sky and it was massive. And it was between us and the tornado was a small town. I could see the houses, I could see barns, farms. And I just remember as I'm photographing with all of my energy saying, please, please don't move. Please don't like just rotate where you are, rotate in place. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want it to hit the town. I didn't want it to destroy anything. And and we were lucky because it spun um probably for about five minutes, maybe, maybe a little longer as this huge EF3 tornado. And then, and then it just, as it lowered it, it same way, it just, it arose back to the cloud, this little spindle of a tornado. And, and that was it. And it was like, I remember being so exhausted, just the stress in my body. Um, And then, there was another one, the one that really defined it all, I think, for me, was El Reno, which was in 2013. And El Reno, <laughs> no, but I have never woken up with a sense of doom and really unease as much as I did that day. And, but when it was all happening, it just, didn't feel right. And there was so much chaos and, and it was very dark. Um, and we had one moment where, as we were driving in our car, this was in Oklahoma, El Reno, Oklahoma, this, this telephone pole and a tree came down like gates across the road, like just saying, stop. As we were about to drive further east into the storm. And we just looked at each other and we said, this doesn't feel right. It was very calm. And we said, I don't like, we said, we don't like the way it feels. Let's look for an exit. So we backed up and went the other way. And we were with somebody else who was like, no, I'm going to keep going. So he in his own car kept going. We met up with him at two in the morning. He was lucky to be alive. His entire car was smashed. Every piece of glass, the mirrors, the windshield, everything was smashed. He said he had been blown into a ditch and he just looped his arms through the uh, steering wheel 
and tucked himself as far as he could under the dash and just prayed. Um, That was a rental car. So he had some explaining to do for that. But uh, he was really lucky to be alive. In that particular storm, I think 11 storm chasers died. Um, One of which was Tim Samaris, who we all knew he's a Nat Geo uh, as the most safe guy, the most sensible guy, and his son and his best friend. And that storm in particular was really interesting because it was the first time that my daughter, who was then 13, texted me and said, Mom, are you okay? She had never texted me while I was out chasing, and I just suddenly it hit me like, oh, my God, I have a child. <laughs> what am I doing? Is that the point where you you thought maybe this was enough of uh, storm chasing? Well, it made me, you know, revisit why, why am I doing this? And so we, I did, I tried to chase one more year in 2014 with the same people. And I think because of what had happened in 2013, we kind of lost our desire to push, push the edge a bit. You know, like if we didn't have a signal that let us know exactly where uh, what was happening as far as Doppler radar, then we wouldn't go over the next rise. And that meant we missed the image. We missed the storm. We missed the light. And that's, you can't chase like that. You have to, you have to be willing to risk it. But to answer your initial question, I, I know for a fact that because so, because of the storm chasing network, the lead time that people get like, Part of our job as storm chasers is to report. We're seeing hail that is golf golf ball sized or softball sized. Part of our our job is to call into the local town and say it's coming your way at this speed, and you know, fire up those sirens. So it's helping. Yeah, it's helping. So it's not. It it is not just about adrenaline junkie. It is it is incredibly beautiful. It can be very powerful to witness such such real awe and beauty but it's the kind of shiva beauty of destruction and creation and it it is it's it i think initially it's something that feels very unusual to move towards those storms when most people are going in the other direction well, thanks for answering that. That's something I've been wondering about. You know, are they rooting for this tornado? Are they rooting? They've done all this work and all this driving. And, and yeah, there's probably a lot of conflicted emotions. Now, you have two books, right? They're still in print. One is um, Melting Away, which is about your your ice photography. And then one is The Big Cloud, which is your more of your storm chasing photography. Are they still available for sale? They are, uh, you know, you can find them in bookstores or directly from the publisher, or even if you, if you want to do online, Amazon sells them for sure. Amazon and your website too. You can buy it on your website. Um, just a link to those places where you can okay. do it. I don't sell directly. If people want a signed copy, they can usually what they do is they purchase it online, have it shipped to me. I sign it and then ship it to them. So tell us really quick, what is your current project? What are you working on right now? That's a good question. Um, I am continuing to go to the Arctic and Antarctic, but my work, if you look at even just 
the first image on my website now. The work has really morphed. Um, I think when I first started going, the work was very noir, sorry, dark and brooding and moody, kind of monochromatic. And and I don't know if the place has changed or if I have changed, because now all I see is incredible color. <laughs> I noticed a bright sunrise and sunset color in the ice. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I was going to say, maybe I'm just photographing myself in these places, you know, as my my feelings in life change or, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm looking for even more and more and more spectacular light. It's a reflection of uh, your place in life. Exactly. Different, you're in a different place now. So everybody check out her website. It's camillesemen.com. And you are fairly active on Instagram as well. And that's at Camille Seaman. Any, any place else that they could find your work. Every, everything is Camille Seaman. If you're a Twitter person, it's Camille Seaman, Instagram, Camille, Facebook. With two L's, like the hurricane. Yeah. Two L's. Yeah. Well, Camille, thanks so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. You're going to make a lot of happy Twitter followers after this is this is dropped. Uh, you've been great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Travel safe. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me. Richard Burnaby. Thanks to Camille Seaman for spending some time with me, sharing some of her insight on her wonderful career in photography. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any comments or feedback. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you'd like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.